Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for the gathering of your people. Um, we pray just for uh, energy for today. It's a busy day. Um, Lord, not only equipping hour and service, but uh, then our members meeting uh, as we seek to come together and as a body uh, exercise the authority you've given us to head a direction that we want to be pleasing to you. So we just ask for the whole day. Um, pray for those who can't be here with us, those who are still recovering from illness and sickness or injury, Lord, that you would be with them and bless them. Uh, bless this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, speaking of injury, uh, Jim uh, texted me this morning and said just to, I'll say this up front and from the pulpit, but just to say thank you for those of you who have called and gave cards and all of that. He just feels really encouraged. So um, just want to pass that along to you guys. Um, we are coming to a close very soon on the, what we've been talking about for uh, several months at this point of uh, how do we read the scriptures. Um, so, you know, we, we talked about how do we even get the scriptures, then we moved into how do we interpret them. Um, we're looking for the human author's intent, observation, interpretation, then application. Um, and uh, we've been then marching through different genres. So New Testament epistle, uh, narrative, um, law, wisdom literature, and uh, what we want to do uh, probably this morning and next Sunday is prophecy. Um, so we want to talk about the genre of prophecy. Uh, but after we're done with that, so I anticipate, we'll see how this goes, I anticipate being done next Sunday, uh, we will switch into the doctrine of God. Uh, that is our next topic. So we're just going to uh, talk about the doctrine of God and especially with the, um, the mindset, not just of knowing more about God, but knowing God. How can we know God uh, more? So that is our goal and our hope. Um, so with that said, let's go ahead and uh, uh, talk about prophecy as our last genre of um, uh, literature. So uh, when we talk about the genre of prophecy, uh, what are we talking about? Uh, yeah, that would be a component of it, for sure. It would be eschatology. Um, so that, what, what, like, books would fall under that heading? Yeah, the major and minor prophets. Uh, uh, just give some examples of major and minor prophets. Isaiah, major prophet. Jeremiah, major prophet. Jonah, minor prophet. Um, you know, all, all sorts of those folks. Not that there isn't prophecy scattered through other books, like even First uh, and Second Kings. Uh, we were going through, we went through that in um, our Bible study on Thursday a little bit, and one of the aspects of First and Second Kings, you see predictions and such by, and, and not just predictions, but, but other things with regard to prophecy in First and Second Kings. But generally speaking, when we're talking about the genre of prophecy, we're thinking about whole books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Jonah, uh, Micah, Nahum, those guys. So, um, so that's what we're talking about. Now, first things first, we've got to do some background. Like we've done with all of our genres, we've got to get our minds oriented to the background uh, before, we, um, before we get going on talking about specific books. So first, let's talk about what a prophet is. What is a prophet? Good. Good definition. Because a lot of times what we think about when we hear the word prophet is we think about someone who foretells the future. Now, that is a definite element of what a prophet can do. But more fundamentally than talking about the future, it's someone who speaks for God. 
In other words, you could be speaking for God and not predicting the future. And in fact, that happens quite often um, when you encounter prophets, whether as individuals or as books. There is a lot of future elements, the eschatology stuff, but there is a lot of just um, the prophet speaking for God. That is more fundamental. Um, and so even like we t- started this series, we talked about scripture is written down prophecy in that sense. It was written down by prophets, those who spoke for God. And we have the writing, uh, um, you know, that writing form of prophecy. But in general, as we think about the genre of prophecy, they are speaking for God. We could even say a little bit more. Um, they are something like um, something like lawyers, in a sense, because a lot of what the prophets are doing uh, as you walk through the scriptures is that they are calling Israel and the king. So the whole nation, yes, but the king in particular, in a lot of instances, they're calling him to account. And the basis for the calling him to account is the law, right? So Deuteronomy and, well, the other books as well. But they're calling him to account. So in a sense, um, they're, they're, they're lawyers. They have a message for their um, the nation and for Israel. They're not just that, but that's part of what they're doing in speaking for God. Now, when you go into a prophetic book, let's say Isaiah or Micah or Joel or any of these books, one of the first things you're going to need to do is you're going to need to locate that prophet in uh, time and situation. Because, like I just said, the prophets are speaking to the nation and to the king. Well, that automatically ties them to specific events that are happening in Israel's history. And so what you want to be able to do, and a good study Bible will help you with this, um, is you want to be able to um, locate, well, who's the prophet speaking to and what's the time frame, what's happening? Because if that prophet is a spokesperson for God, who are they speaking to? They are speaking to their generation and to their situation. So as you think about approaching the prophets, you need to be able to locate them in time. In particular, as far as a broad kind of breaking down of at least time, um, you want to think about are we pre-exile? Are we in the exile? Are we after the exile? Uh, that's, you know, we could get more specific than that, but the exile is a big deal with regard to the prophets because if you think about them as lawyers in the sense of um, calling Israel to account based on the law, well, the ultimate covenant curse is exile. And so uh, a lot of the prophets are speaking leading up to that exile. They're speaking either during that exile or they're speaking after that exile. So that's a big benchmark that kind of divides us up. The other thing to think about is, are they, you, you know, you think about First and Second Kings. After Solomon, we get the split kingdom, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Are they speaking to Israel or are they speaking to Judah? And so, like I said, if you're locating uh, a prophet in time and situation, you're probably going to be referring back to First and Second Kings quite a bit. Uh, to just get a sense of, well, what's going on in that time frame uh, to understand what the, the nation is like, what's happening, 
um, so that you can interpret what they are saying. Because otherwise you walk into a prophet, it's like, this is just kind of bizarre. Uh, there's just all this weird language and figurative language, and it's like, well, how does this apply? Well, the first thing you got to start, start with is, well, what does it mean? And what it means means what it meant in their particular context and generation. You got to get a handle on that uh, before you think about meaning and before you think about application. Okay, uh, so that's kind of the historical backdrop to prophets. Any questions up to where we're at? Okay. So then the next thing you need to think about as far as a backdrop, a context for uh, the prophets of Scripture is the theological context. So we talk about the historical context a little bit, talk about the theological context. And I've already mentioned some of that. Um, what is, how is the Bible, how is the storyline of the Bible advance? There you go, through the covenants, right? Um, I've trained you well. Um, so, through the covenants, um, and that is the important theological backdrop for, of course, the whole Bible, but for the prophets in particular. Um, we've got, if you think about all the covenants, you've got the Adamic covenant and the promise um, kind of coming out of the Adamic covenant after the fall of the promise of the male offspring of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. You've got the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. You've got the prom of a land, a seed, and a blessing that are specific to Israel and how that's all going to work out. You've got the promise of the Davidic covenant of the everlasting reign of the king um, and over Israel and Israel being at rest. Uh, and then you've got the Mosaic covenant, which it administrates the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. If you obey the law, then you're going to inherit the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. If you disobey, you get the exact opposite. So all of those covenants and how they intertwine and work together, that is a key theological backdrop as you're working through the prophets. Because what the prophets are going to do is they are going to, like I already said, they're going to talk to Israel. Primarily, they're going to talk to Israel. They do address other nations, but they kind of do it through Israel, even in those cases. They are talking to Israel. Well, Israel's got these unilateral promises from God saying, yeah, you're going to get land, seed, and blessing. It's going to happen. Universal promise. However, uh, are you the generation that's going to get the land, the, the blessing? Well, that depends on whether you're going to keep the law or not. And if you're not keeping the law, you're going to get uh, curses instead of blessings, at least for that generation. So that's what the prophets are going to do often. They're going to look to the law and they're, say, and they're going to talk to Israel. But it's not just about Israel because all of those other promises like the Noahic covenant, like the Adamic covenant, like the Davidic covenant, there's implications for the whole world as well. And so that's where even as you walk through the prophets, they're going to be talking about uh, other promises, not just the law and not just the Abrahamic covenant. They're going to talk about those other um, um, promises and blessings from God. And so you need to be familiar with those covenants in order to, as you're reading the prophets, understand, oh, they're mentioning that concept. Well, that concept's tied to this covenant and this idea in order to be able to understand how they're addressing the audience in front of them. Okay? Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Okay, um, as we were talking about um, the, um, uh, 
what we just said is the covenants generally uh, are important, but like I've already emphasized, even more specifically, there are um, the chapters of blessings and curses at the end of the Mosaic Covenant, or in, in, in the midst of the Mosaic Covenant, that are especially prominent uh, in what the prophets are doing. So if you were to, you know, turn back to Deuteronomy 27. Uh, let's do 28. Just go to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, uh, just in general, the last few chapters of Deuteronomy are going to be uh, a huge context for you. Also, Leviticus 26 covers a lot of the same ground, but Deuteronomy uh, 28, let's just read a few verses. Um, someone read Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 6. Okay, so, and it keeps going. Um, it, it talks about, okay, if you're going to obey, here's what it's going to look like. So a lot of times the prophets will say, turn, repent, and if you obey, here's all this blessing God's going to bring on you, because that's what Deuteronomy 28 is talking about. If you go down, uh, Deuteronomy 28, uh, 15 through, I don't know, uh, 19. So I'm going to read Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 19. And it goes on and on. In fact, it goes on for a lot longer than it does for the blessing portion um, because uh, that's primarily a lot of what the prophets are going to talk about. If you don't repent, God's going to bring uh, these curses on you uh, because you're not repenting. And, in, um, and so the prophets will refer to that and they'll talk about those ideas. Now, one key thing to remember, which will also form some of the backdrop, what does Moses... Uh, not only in Deuteronomy 30, but um, elsewhere in Deuteronomy, what does he say the fundamental problem with Israel is, even as he's finishing writing the law? They're stiff-necked, uh, and what does he relate that to? Like, what ultimately is the problem? Well, rebellion, but where does, that, where does it go? It's not just the actions, but it's the what? The heart, right? It's the heart. So that's why in Deuteronomy, I think it's 10, he'll call Israel, circumcise your heart. Don't just have the sign of the covenant in your external flesh, but have it in your, your heart. That's what God wants. And uh, even in Deuteronomy 30, basically God says, well, all the blessings and curses are going to come upon you. But then after that, and I'm paraphrasing Deuteronomy 30 a lot, but Deuteronomy, is very Deuteronomy 30 is very important for 
redemptive history and even how the prophets are talking, Deuteronomy 30 basically says uh, you need your heart circumcised, not just as particular individuals in the nation, but the nation as a whole, such that you do obey the law and these curses don't come upon you anymore. Um, so Deuteronomy 30 and that idea of repentance from the heart is going to be a key factor in how the um, prophets are going to talk. Um, the prophets are going to call for uh, repentance quite often. Um, and here's the thing, even when they don't explicitly call for repentance, so what they'll do, what you'll hear the prophets doing, whether to Israel or to the nations, uh, you can think of Jonah in this case. Think about Jonah. What is Jonah's message to Nineveh? It's Well, actually, if you look at Jonah 3, um, what is his message? What is the message he actually articulates to to, um, to Nineveh? You're going to be destroyed. That's all he says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. That's all he says. And then um, the Ninevites repent in sackcloth and ashes. And then it says that God relents uh, from the disaster he was going to do against Nineveh, and he did not do it. Now, why and how in the world uh, is God breaking his promise? Is he going back on what he was talking about? What's going on? Well, even when there's no explicit articulation of repent, uh, you know, this is going to happen unless you repent, and that, that's not articulated explicitly in Jonah, there's the understanding that, okay, here's the judgment that is coming upon you unless you repent. Uh, and there's proof for that. If you go to Jeremiah, go to Jeremiah 18. <clears throat> Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. Someone go ahead and read that. In fact, let's back up. Uh, Jeremiah 18, 5 through 10. I'm going to go ahead and read that. All right. Jeremiah 18, 5 through 10. Uh, you can go ahead and finish up that paragraph.
Okay, so um, he's talking specifically to Israel and even more specifically to Judah at this point. However, it's the principle that he articulates about repentance uh, in that. What does he say? Yeah, so God announces disaster against someone, a nation. He doesn't even specify Israel. He just says a nation, like Nineveh, right? He announces disaster, and there's the understanding, as he articulates here, that even if he doesn't explicitly say, if you repent, you can avoid the disaster, that that in general is the program and the, the plan. God will relent uh, if you repent, right? Uh, on the other hand, what's the flip side of that principle? Exactly. So, uh, even uh, you, um, if God promises blessing and good, and they t- someone takes advantage of it, right? A nation takes advantage of that, then uh, God's going to think better <laughs> of doing the blessing on them, right? So that's how God operates. Um, and in, in in general, He's painting with a broad brushstroke. Here's how I deal with nations, not only Israel, although He's applying it to Israel in this case, but also the the other nations. But the the grand call is repentance. Turn change. Uh, that's a lot of what's going on there, okay? Any questions kind of on, those are just, we talked about historical backdrop. This is more kind of some of the theology and the principles by which the prophets are operating as they, as they bring their message. Any questions? Yeah, Bruce. Yep. Yes. Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's, what's that? Yes, and in fact, I have to double check this, but I think the same Hebrew word is used for both, um, you know, a human being, uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, and what that's trying to articulate, right, is that, we, we know God is sovereign. We know God doesn't, um, like, he doesn't change his, his mind in the sense that, like, oh, I didn't know that I was going to do that, and I, I guess I'm just going to kind of change in that way. He does change his mind in the sense that he himself decreed that he was going to relent um, prior to it, so he already knew that he was going to take that action. Um, so we understand that, uh, and then the scriptures just kind of use a normal way of um, human speech and saying, well, he's, he's changing uh, based on uh, a human's response. But God already knew that's what was going to happen anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, Genevieve. Yes. Um, Yeah, so let's talk about human repentance briefly, since we're talking about it. That's important, and then we'll talk about God's, you know, how a similar concept might relate to God. So first, um, human repentance, the idea is not just that you're changing actions, although that is part of it, it is that you are changing your fundamental heart direction. That's why you'll hear me say, you know, as we're going through Matthew, turn your allegiance from sin and self. So it is a turning, 
and it's more comprehensive than, oh, I'm just going to change this action and that action. It's a comprehensive change, but that comprehensive change does work its way out into specific individual actions. Okay, so like when the prophets are talking to Israel, he's calling for them to change their heart disposition uh, that's going to work its way out. So oftentimes what you will see is even, um, even a specific motif that you will see in the prophets is they will say, care for the orphan and the widow. Uh, do justice to the fathers. Do, 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 do social justice. And what, um, what that is manifesting is that reality in the law that if you love God, you have that vertical relationship, which is the core of the law, then that's going to work its way out into horizontal care for others. And so what you'll see the prophets do is say, hey, repent and do right in a horizontal way, do social justice, do uh, care for the orphan and the widow, because if you have truly changed, if your heart allegiance has truly turned, then that's going to manifest itself in how you act. Okay, so that's human repentance. Now, does God repent well, not in the sense that he, like, oh, I was heading this direction, and oh, I wasn't expecting that, and so now I'm changing. Because God knows, he knows what he's going to do in the future, and not only does he know what he's going to do in the future, he actually decrees all that comes to pass. So, uh, so you think about a situation like Mount Sinai with the golden calf, right? God uh, talks to Moses, and he's like, I'm going to wipe these people out, and I'm going to start afresh with you. Um, and then Moses intercedes with God, and he pleads with him based on God's reputation to say, well, what are the Egyptians going to say? What about all your promises? And God changes in the sense that, yeah, he doesn't destroy them, but God already knew ahead of time that he was going to do that, uh, but that change is you know, manifested in time uh, to to um, Moses. So is it a change? I would say yes, it's a change, but it's a change that God himself has already known about and is decreed and is ready for. Um, so he's using human, uh, he's, he's relating to human beings in such a way that that is, that's happening. I hope that makes sense. Yes, yeah, Susan. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, it, it kind of gets, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the doctrine of God, like that's the next thing we're going to go into for equipping hour. And we'll talk about some of God's attributes, and we'll talk about immutability, you know, the unchangingness of God, and what does that actually mean? Does it mean that there are absolutely zero changes in God whatsoever? I don't think you can biblically support that, um, but it does certainly mean that God never changes his character or his decrees, or his plans, or his knowledge, right? And so, is there a real change in time um, in his disposition and relationship, you know, with our example with Moses and the golden calf, between, all right, I'm going to wipe Israel out, and then Moses intercedes, and then he's not. Yeah, there's a real change there in God's disposition, but it's one that uh, was totally in accord with God's character that he already knew about, that he already had decreed, so... Hope that helps a little bit. So, yeah, Bruce. That is true, right? So you think about Nineveh. God relents. Um, he 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 shifts. 
but then you kind of see 100 years later they fall back into the same pattern. But you got to understand that what, um, what Jonah was speaking, he was speaking to a specific generation in a specific time, and he's, he's saying, you're going to be destroyed, uh, and yet they repent, and God, because of who he is in his character, uh, decides, and because of like the principles that we read in Jeremiah, he relents um, so that that's not going to happen. So was there a change in what God was doing? Yeah, but it was totally in accord with his character, with his plan, with his decree. Uh, uh, so that's, that's kind of how we articulate that. Yeah, yeah Tony. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yep. Sure. Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. And so that you see that at Mount Sinai, like he talks to the people from the cloud, and they're like, t- they're terrified, and they know they're going to be destroyed, and they say, "Give us. You speak to him. We need a mediator. We need someone to go between." And uh, God says, yeah, you're, you're, they're right to think that. And so that's, you've got Moses as prophet par excellence. And then it establishes uh, uh, the whole office of prophet. Okay. Um, okay, a few, few more other details. Who are the prophets? They come from all over. So you've got like Amos, who's like a farmer. You've got like Isaiah, who's court in the king's court. Um, these guys come from all over as far as background. Uh, often the prophets will embody their message in some way. So you think about Ezekiel, and like um, Ezekiel, a lot of his messages, he's like in the second wave of exile, and like uh, Nebuchadnezzar's going to come and destroy Jerusalem, and he has to like lay with, uh, on his side for so many days, like, and he has like this model of Jerusalem, that kind of a thing. That's a sign act where the the prophets are embodying their message. And why, why are they doing that? Well, they're doing it because they're kind of like preachers. They're trying to get the attention of the people uh, to, uh, to preach their message and also to embody it. Um, so they'll use vivid language. Um, they're, if, um, if you were to give any kind of corollary to a New Testament, I mean, there are New Testament prophets, but they're very similar to preachers um, in the sense of they have a message to share from God in that sense. Um, and like I said, the, you will often find the prophets, yes, addressing the nation, but you will also find them addressing the king in particular. Because if you think about um, the kingdom of Israel, who's at the top, well, in a civil sense, the king, well, who's above the king? Well, God is, so how is God going to rebuke the king? When the king's going astray, he's going to use a prophet, um, and that sort of a thing. So that's just another idea to keep in mind. Okay. Any questions before I give you some principles for interpreting prophecy? We're just talking about background in a lot of this up to this point. Yeah. 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 Right. 
Well, yeah. Well, and that's, that's kind of part of it's both the um, good and the bad of a king. So God's plan has always been for a king, a chosen king, uh, from Adam um, to, um, well, Jesus, right? The plan is for a king. Um, the benefit, the, the king is supposed to lead the people in obedience to Yahweh. So you look at Deuteronomy 17, God gives stipulations. All right, here's the kind of king you're going to choose. Someone who looks to my word, who obeys my word, um, so that he's governed by God's law, and so that then um, that's what the people are supposed to be governed by, and so is he. Really, the king embodies the people in a person, and the, they're, they're welded together. It's this fa- the, the fancy word for that is corporate solidarity. The king is Israel in a person, and um, he, he, what he does is he represents Israel, but he also has a role in leading Israel in obedience. Same could be said to an extent for other nations, um, but that's what he's supposed to do. This is, this is God's law. You're supposed to obey it and to lead and to be an example in that direction. So, yeah. Okay, three principles, three key principles for interpreting prophecy. Okay, um, and some of this is going to intersect with the idea of they do foretell the future. Um, here are three principles, and um, I've got an image to go along with each one. So the first principle is this, in addition to our normal rules for interpretation. One, prophetic authors are concerned with theology over chronology. So they will um, state things in their messages. They're not necessarily chronological, especially if they're talking about the future. It's not necessarily chronological. It can be. Depends. Uh, but the concern is theology over chronology. So sometimes the things, especially if they're talking about the future, they will describe events as if they're right on top of each other. It looks like it's right on top of each other. Uh, And then only in time, when you get closer to those events, or we get further revelation later down the line, we understand, oh, there's actually a separation between those two. And so this is what we call the mountaintop principle, right? If you see a range of mountains from a faraway distance, uh, sometimes they look like, whoa, they're right on top of each other. But then when you get closer, those mountain peaks are separated in time. Let me give you an illustration. Go to Isaiah uh, 61. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Uh, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair, repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Okay, so you got this prophecy, and generally speaking, this is, um, uh, this is, 
the individual in Isaiah. In the earlier chapters, he's a king. In kind of 40 through 55, he's uh, the servant of the Lord. And here you've got like a, an anointed conqueror is the picture. Um, and what, he, what this anointed one does is he is bringing in this day of rescue and vengeance, okay? Now, uh, specifically, if you see verse 2 in Isaiah 61, he's going to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day, day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So it looks like they're right on top of each other. Those events are going to happen at the exact same time. Mountains stacked right there. So then we go 700 years later, and Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he cracks open his, the scroll. I guess he doesn't crack it open. He rolls it open. Anyway, to this point. And he stops in verse 2, right after it says, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. He stops. Right there, right mid-verse. Um, why is that? Because in Jesus' first advent, uh, the primary emphasis is on proclaiming the year of Yahweh's favor, the message of salvation. Um, the rest of it, the day of vengeance of our God, comes later, his second advent. So you've got a verse here that you know looks like it's right on top of each other. It looks like two mountain peaks are side by side, but as history unfolds, as revelation unfolds, we understand, oh, looks right on top of each other, but there's, there's, a, there's actually more than a 2,000-ish year gap um, between those realities. And so that's the mountaintop principle, that um, here we have Isaiah concerned with theology over chronology. He's not specifying the, dis, the distance in time between those two events. You've got to keep that in mind as you're working through the prophets, um, uh, and especially as they're predicting the future. Yes, was, Genevieve, do you have a hand? Okay, you're just adjusting your glasses. Very good. Okay, any, any questions on that? All right. Second principle. Be wary of calling a historical event a fulfillment that does not precisely fulfill the prediction. This is... Uh, and I got this language from um, one of my seminary professors, this is the fat lady principle. Because it's not over until the fat lady sings, right? So I got that from seminary. There you go. Uh, um, but what it's trying to illustrate is, is there are things that happen historically that look an awful lot like a fulfillment of a prophecy. Uh, but that... And they may very well look like it. In fact, it intertwines with the next principle I'm going to tell you in a second. But you can't call something a fulfillment until all the details are in place. Okay? You can't call something a fulfillment until all the details are in place. It can be a partial fulfillment. Uh, and so as you interpret and you're looking at the prophets, and as you even look at the New Testament and how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament... Uh, they might even call something a fulfillment, but it might be something like a partial fulfillment. And so you have to understand that it's not over till it's over, uh, that you have to have all the details in place. Okay, here's an illustration. Acts 2. Um, Acts 2, uh, we'll go there quickly.
Okay, so Peter is preaching in Acts 2. We've got the whole tongues happening and the foreign languages being spoken and people understanding them. And here's what, here's what Peter says in his sermon, verse 16, Acts 2, 16. But this, the situation that's happening with the foreign tongues and people hearing them in their own, hearing um, the people proclaim God's work through Jesus in their, their own tongues, their own languages, uh, 2.16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and, and signs on the earth below, uh, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of, Yahweh, uh, day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so Peter is saying this is a fulfillment of Joel, or at least this is what, at least he's saying that some of what is going on is what is connected with what's happening in Joel. So here's the issue. Some of what Joel talks about is present on the day of Pentecost. Is all of it? No. So like uh, the blood and the fire and the vapor of smoke and all of that sort of thing, that is not present yet, although it's connected with the, some of the things that are going on in Acts. So, what's going on here? Well, what we can say is, is it's not over till it's over. Some of Joel's prophecy is yet to happen, um, but we've got what we call a partial fulfillment. And this leads us to the third principle, which is this, foreshadowings or partial fulfillments, if you will, um, are movements towards the fulfillment. This is what we call the step principle. That something can look an awful lot like fulfilled prophecy, uh, like what we have in, in Acts and with Joel, and it does. There's aspects of it that do look like a, a full and final fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, and yet it's not all the way there yet. It's a step principle. It's a step up. Another illustration of this, if you were reading in Daniel and you're reading in uh, chapter 11, uh, some of what Daniel talks about is historically related to the intertestamental period and uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he's this Greek ruler who claimed to be God and he he oppresses the Jews, okay? At a certain point in Daniel 11, I think it's verse 36, if I remember correctly, all of a sudden, like, that matching up of history stops, and you start, he starts talking about this, this guy, who we will ultimately know as the Antichrist, uh, doing way more than Antiochus Epiphanes ever did. So what was the fulfillment? Well, it's the step principle. Antiochus IV, the Epiphanes, is a historical character who looks an awful lot like what the full and final Antichrist is going to look like. Uh, and that's kind of how this works. 
Um, so you keep those three principles in mind, especially with regard to future. Remember, the prophets don't just foretell, foretell the future. And in fact, even when they do foretell the future, they're doing it for a specific reason for their audience. But regardless, especially when we think about their predictions about the future, uh, you got these three principles. Mountaintop, right? They can look really right on top of each other until you get closer in historical in time. There's actually a gap. It's not over till it's over. It's not over till the fat lady sings, the fat lady principle. And then you've got the step principle, that there can be foreshadowings, steps, that look an awful lot like the final fulfillment until, but the, it's not the final thing until it's the final thing. So those are three principles that will help you as you walk through prophecy. Okay? There's more to be said, so we'll talk more about some more principles next week. Are there any questions, though, before we close for today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that's a good example because we saw that in, in Matthew, right? That, that Jesus says, well, if you repent, if you receive the message that I'm bringing to you, essentially what's what he says to Israel, um, then John is Elijah, the one predicted at the end of Malachi. Um, the problem is they don't. So John does look an awful lot like Malachi, but he, is he a fulfillment of the Malachi promise? No, not until we get to the two witnesses, I think, in, in, in Revelation. Uh, and so that's an, that's an outworking of that step principle and the fat lady principle. They're kind of intertwined. So, yeah, good point. Any other questions? All right, well, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the prophets. Um, they, it, is, it is beautiful. It is confusing to us, separated by time and space. But um, we just pray that you would help us as we continue to think about principles and also how we look at the prophets, how we read the prophets, so that we can learn and glean and have application uh, for ourselves today. Uh, Lord, we thank you for fulfilled prophecy that we have seen uh, in, in many ways uh, throughout the Old Testament and especially also in the New Testament. We thank you, Jesus, that you've come uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and that has been fulfilled and, um, we, and is being fulfilled. Um, and because you fulfilled uh, many things in detail at your first coming, we look forward to all the rest that remains yet to be fulfilled at your second coming. Help us to wait eagerly for your coming, to long for you, um, to wait for you, to be patient, to be faithful um, in uh, what you would have us be as a people. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. Bless the gathering that's going to happen here shortly in your name. Amen.